it's so, so important for Americans to stand up for minority religious communities. I'm sort of really um, enthralled with this project is that I think it really is a larger injustice to both have your life unrepresented within mainstream media, to like not see your life and your experiences portrayed, and also to not see yourself as fully human. That's a clip from my conversation with Christy Peterson back in February. Chrissy, a doctoral candidate in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, spoke with me about her dissertation research on young Muslim engagement with online media and her experiences as a white scholar studying an antagonized minority. We also explored a topic of importance to both of us, public scholarship. We reflected on how our work can contribute to the society outside of academia. And for those of you non-academic listeners, if all of that sounded really scholastic and jargony, I promise you this interview isn't. And this episode is for you too. Because part of public scholarship is explaining what it is that we do. So in this scholar profile, Holy Media illuminates the world of research and provides transparency behind the academic curtain. So everyone, take a listen. Joining me is Chrissy Peterson. Chrissy is a doctoral candidate in media studies in the College of Media, Communication, and Information, and she's a research fellow for the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her research focuses on Islam in North America, and she specifically examines how young Muslims engage with online media sites images, videos, and creative projects as spaces to explore different discourses, aesthetic styles, and affects. So thanks for uh, coming on the show, Chrissy. Thanks for having me, Ashley. So to get us started, um, just if you want to briefly explain kind of your general research interests and then how you got into what you're focusing on for your dissertation. Great, yeah. So for my dissertation, I'm looking at sort of how young Muslim Americans, so thinking in North America, Canada, and the U.S., are using um, visual images, uh, videos, artwork, creative projects um, within digital spaces as a way to work against kind of these dominant stereotypes of Muslims that we see in the media and also to sort of shift wider perceptions of Muslims um, within American public life. Um, And so I became interested in this topic sort of two ways. One is kind of generally I've always been really attracted to looking at um, visual projects and thinking about how um, individuals represent themselves visually. Hmm. And I'm sort of really tied into, you know, I just really enjoy artwork and looking at images um, and thinking through and analyzing those. Um, But also, I got interested in this project, I think, because of the way um, when you look at how Muslims are represented or sort of unrepresented within um, American media, mainstream media, it's just a pretty um, terrible representation. Um, I think if you were to look at, if you were to kind of replace some, you know, Muslims um, with other, you know, particular minority groups, you know, African Americans or Latinos or um, Jewish Americans, I think people would be pretty stunned Mm -hmm. at the um, representations and how really blatantly stereotypical um, and very, you know, one-dimensional these images are. Um, So there's almost very few um, representations of Muslims as 
normal sort of well-rounded human beings who aren't sort of just you know your average Americans <laughs> just <citizen>. average normal <laughs> human beings right um, exactly and so um, I really just was kind of struck by this and have always been struck by this and the fact that these um, uh, images kind of repeat right you, you can look back into the 1800s and yeah. see the same exact um, images and um, so really thinking about how that's such a persistent thing and then getting interested in how these um, mostly young Muslims are kind of um, trying to work against these stereotypes and sometimes I think very creative um, and very you know sometimes even humorous ways mm-hmm. and thinking about you know um, just really getting interested in that and trying to um, understand more about that um, and I think another point I want to make about the images and as I think there's kind of and why I'm sort of really um, enthralled with this project is that I think it really is like a larger injustice to both have your life unrepresented within mainstream media to like not see your life and your experiences portrayed yeah and also to not see yourself as fully human mm-hmm. or um, to have society I mean right yes. yeah <laughs> and so I just think that to me is like an, a moral injustice and then I also think as we're seeing now, how these images actually have an impact in social life yep. because um, Americans, majority of Americans, or about 50%, don't actually know someone who's Muslim in their real life. And so these images are really recreating this idea of Muslims as foreigners, as enemies. And so the fact that you see people fearful about um, you know, these refugees as if they're going to come over and, you know, and just immediately become terrorists. In what way have you seen that you're kind of also giving, like, in in studying negative representations of people? Mm -hmm. Because this is actually something I am trying Mm -hmm. to confront with my own work. In studying the negative representations of people, how much are you actually giving them credence and Mm -hmm. therefore not, therefore, like, like, lifting them up? rather than trying to mm-hmm. diminish them and yeah i guess maybe what i think about is the fact that um you have to kind of name what you're working against in order to understand what you're creating um so i think in my work when i start to write up the dissertation one part of that will be a section about the visual history of Muslims because, and getting into things like Orientalist tropes, Mm -hmm. um, because it's not the focus of my work. I mean, that's not going to be the focus, but it's an important background to Mm -hmm. have because you have to understand what people are working against and this very long, um, very powerful tradition. So I, and I think a lot of people are maybe unaware of this and, and once it's kind of called to light, they um, they think more critically about it, mm-hmm. and you recognize these things more. Um, so I guess it's more a matter of because we can think about you know how with say like Jewish Americans, you can think about like the hook nose yep. being a st- thing, right? Or you can think about African Americans like um, you know watermelon mm-hmm. or something, right? So we have these ideas in our mind that we know are these tropes that are stereotypical that are you know offensive mm-hmm. um but i think for muslims um oftentimes 
there isn't a very, it's not as, like, obvious, Mm -hmm. like, when you use these things, um, that it's offensive. Yeah. You know, so I think it's important to kind of call these things out, um, and point them out, Mm -hmm. um, in order to kind of dismantle them. And the other thing I would say is that the people that are participating in my research project are very, very hyper aware of these, um, stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And in their work, they're really aware of that as they're creating these mm-hmm. portrayals. Yeah. yeah. It's the return of the hijabi b-girl click spit. Intergalactic words unthrown. Now we ain't no showgirls. Muslim chick with an itch to spit skits. Flipping the script and I'm taking my tips from sacred scripts. Make sacred trips with the rhymes I spit. Pray for ghetto kids who only fly when it's lifted. It. Wish I could lift their spirits high over the tar rock bricks. Maybe I could do it with the rhymes I spit. It's bigger than hip-hop, b-rock, e-sop, so, so what have you found? Um, how are, are these young Muslims in, you said, Canada, the U.S.? Yeah, just Canada, Canada the U.S. The US yeah. um, mm-hmm. Kind of engaging with these media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple examples. Um, one of the case studies I'm going to look at in my final project is um, a woman who runs uh, a blog, and it's called, um, she identifies herself as the Salafi feminist, and she's a Canadian. Um, and Salafi, for people who are unfamiliar, is like a more traditional branch of, of Islam. Um, and she herself wears um, the niqab, which is the face veil, and she wears like an abaya, which is a big black kind of gown. And um, I'm looking at her work. She's a, she's a blogger. She writes about feminist issues within Islam. So a very fascinating kind of blend of these different um, Western traditions yep. and um, older um, Islamic traditions, more, um, like I said, more traditional understanding of Islam. Excuse me. Um, and what I'm looking at in her case is there was a series of pictures that um, was so sort of circulating around it's in social media, and it was a Washington Post photographer. No, I think it was AP photographer. And he had took these images where he went to, like, different locations within the Middle East, and he took pictures where he put, like, a piece of fabric over his lens. And he said, you know, oh, this is what the world looks like for women who are veiled, right? And there were several problems with that project, Um, one being that um, it was, like, you know, not really accurate because the majority of women who wear a face veil don't cover their eyes. (laughs) So they can see perfectly fine. Um, But anyway, so it was problematic for a lot of reasons, kind of orientalist, um, kind of masculine, you know, male male gaze, yeah. Um, But what what she did, this young woman, Zainab, um, is that she emailed her friends and um, fellow women who wear the niqab, um, as they call themselves, niqabis, um, and she had them all submit. She said, hey, like, this is really ridiculous and stupid that this guy is, like, speaking for us. Send me your pictures mm-hmm. that you have. And they all sent her, like, mostly just kind of, like, cell phone pictures that they had taken of themselves, you know, doing different activities, you know, shopping at Target, um, hanging out with their friends, um, riding a motor scooter, um, playing hockey, like, all these different... Once again, normal human Yeah, just normal human <laughs> portrayals of themselves, right? And then and then she wrote these, like, really, really great sarcastic um articles and columns online with the pictures talking about how basically we can speak for ourselves. We have our own voices. We have our own cameras. We can portray our lives um, on our own. Thank you very much. And so that's one of the cases that I'm looking at, um, thinking about, um, you know, how these women are representing themselves. Um, Also, a couple other cases um, and things I've been finding, um, looking at a little bit with 
the Mipsters movement, which is like a movement that came out a couple years ago. It's Muslim hipsters. So it's young Muslim Americans who are um, mostly based in the cities who did like this really creative fashion video. Huh. Um, portraying themselves in their fashion. Um, and this video really um, offers more of a, ver- shows sort of a variety of the um, uh, the way people express their identity as Muslims. So where it's the previous case, very much more of an orthodox representation. Um, with this one, you have women who are wearing the headscarf in many different styles, yep. very different ethnic um, representation as well within the video, um, different interpretations of what it means to be modest, um, what it means to be to appear and identify as Muslim, um, but also just showing women having fun, enjoying themselves, being normal, um, complex, creative individuals. Um, so those are just a few examples. I mean, there's a lot of other really kind of creative projects. Um, there's another woman who's doing a photo series of Muslim Americans in different prayer locations, so taking pictures of them. Um, when they're out, you know, out and about yeah. at a shopping mall, traveling, and taking um, portraits of them praying in these different locations, and they're all public spaces, so it's a sense of um, Americans not only uh, Muslims not only are American, but also are have a place and a physical, you know, have Presence, a right to yeah. be in these spaces. Uh, so, I mean. You're also dealing with some really emotional stories, because um, I know you've also done some work on the Chapel Hill mm-hmm. shooting victims. Yeah, um, how, I mean, one, how do you deal with the emotions of the people that, you know, are speaking with you? Because mm-hmm. even outside the Chapel Hill example, you know, these are women, these are these are Muslims, who have basically been marginalized and belittled mm-hmm. and have some trauma, I would imagine, from yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So how do you, one, deal with their their emotions and their feelings about issues? Mm-hmm. And then also, how do you take care of yourself as a scholar mm-hmm. dealing with such a, an emotional topic? Yeah, so to kind of start off, I'll explain a little bit about what you're referencing, the Chapel Hill shooting. So that's another case that... Um, I didn't mention yet, but that is um, happened two years ago, just about two years ago now. It was early February, um, where three young um, people who were uh, husband and a wife, um, Dea and Yusor, they were both dental students at UNC Chapel Hill, and um, and then Yusor's sister Razan, who was a student at NC State um, in Raleigh. They were in the apartment of the couple, and their neighbor came and. Um, just basically shot them in their apartment. But what I'm looking at in that case is not so much specifically like the crime. What I'm looking at is the way, um, in the very immediate after effect of this tragedy, the family members and friends went online and created a Facebook page and created hashtags and took images and tweets and quotes from the social media pages of these three um, young people and distributed them very widely. Mm -hmm you know, in the immediate aftermath of what happened, I kind of was looking at these pictures and was just like, I've never seen these types of images before. Mm-hmm. Like, I know, I know Muslims who are normal, <laughs> wonderful <Who> are human <laughs> people, um, but I looked at these pictures and I thought, these pictures are on CNN, yeah. these are being circulated, and this hasn't happened before. No. So to me, that case is very emotional for a lot of reasons. Um, so talking with people about it, um, that's been a challenge because 
Um, people have been very willing to talk about it, but what's difficult is, you know, I mean, it's a, I mean, one of the worst possible things that could happen, right? A traumatic experience. It's kind of this ambivalent, um, ambiguous guilt, or they talk, mm-hmm. or grief. Sorry, um, this idea that. Um, you know, you it's difficult to grieve. And, like, yep. talking with some of the friends and family, you know, they're talking about how they have to prepare for the case now and the trial. So that's two years after the fact, and they're still going, going through, through a grief yeah. process. Because it's the way, it, you know, these things happen, you, you can't proceed through, like, the normal stages of grief because now you have to Relive process it. it again, right? Um, so that's been... That, that kind of is, you know, definitely something that's a challenge. Um, and, um, so I guess my approach to it is to, I'm really focusing in on the projects and the work that people are doing. And so I find that when you talk to people about those things, like those are things that people are in a sense proud of, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're proud that, that this stuff is going on and that they're continuing the legacy of these, um, three individuals. And so, focusing in on that but I'm very aware you know as I'm talking to people sometimes people are going you know that you don't want to as a researcher cause people to have to have more suffering because of talking to you yeah so um trying to focus more in on like the projects and things that they're working on um I mean I think for me I'm it's more of a matter of um I think it's just the larger picture of trying to process this research and how I fit into it and thinking about, um, yeah, I just think thinking about like my role in the Mm -hmm. project. Um, but it's definitely, I went out to North Carolina a couple weeks ago to interview some people and, um, it was definitely like after each interview, kind of a trying thing of like reflecting on, on this and, um, seeing people and how they're dealing with this in different ways Mm -hmm. so um some of the people were very had kind of a positive outlook on using these projects as a way to kind of move forward um so they're working on different like building a community center and um doing different fundraising projects Mm -hmm. and they're making a documentary um and so thinking of that as kind of a way to move forward but then other people kind of thinking with the current political climate, like, very hopeless, you yeah. know, um, because, and also kind of wanting to, you know, not move on, but wanting to be able to grieve in their own way. Right. And for some people, grieving is not having all it's of this pu- it's also stuff not public. being yeah. brought up. Yeah. And that's the other thing, I mean, with the family, um, I only really spoke with the one brother who's involved in some of the social media work, but, um... I mean, the two families, it's just incredible the fact that they have been um, so public in their um, grief. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's just, I, I, don't, I mean, it's incredibly admirable. I don't know that I could do that at all. Yeah. But in, off, and in a way, it's a very positive thing for, for Islam because it's, shown, cause it's for them, their faith is what's sort of driving them to continue to do this work because they believe that their children were, you know, angels and were, um, you know, really contributed a lot to the community, and they're trying to continue that. Yeah, and, I mean, I I actually got to hear Dea's sister 
talked. Oh, Suzanne, yeah. Yeah, at the Parliament of the World's Religions in oh. Salt Lake City. Okay. And just listening to her tell, she retold the story about being at work at a hospital in San Francisco. Speaking about a whole family full of doctors. She's also yeah. a medical student. Yeah. Um, and just hearing the information while, while being a med student, you know, who's like sleep deprived, you know, trying to be mm-hmm. compassionate for other people who are going through trying times mm-hmm. and then just getting this news and wanting all she wanted to do was be halfway all the way on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a really, I mean, besides yeah. the fact that she's a very good storyteller, I was very impressed that, yeah. you know, to, to put yourself yeah. vulnerable and in public like that is... Yeah, and I know she did interviews on TV um, and her, the family has done interviews uh, that the parents, um, and so yeah, it's it's really I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would be able to do such a thing. Um, but I think that the work that they're doing is so important, and it's I think going to have a big impact. And they're still, I mean, two years later, incredibly involved and very aware of you know mm-hmm. the current political climate. In our seminars for the Center yeah. for Media, Religion, and Culture, um, we've started to try and think about how our work relates, you know, more to engage the public yeah. and and how we're doing our work and what impact or like civic engagement we can have. Yeah. Um, and I know, and I know for some people you know, academics and non-academics alike, that's very jarring to hear because there's this belief that, you know, we we operate in a bubble, which in mm-hmm. some regards we do, but that our work has no direct impact. It has to go through policymakers mm-hmm. or go through journalists or there's no direct conversation. Mm-hmm. And yet, given what you're studying there, there is a ha- you know there's a direct conversation yeah. happening between not just you know thinking about your case studies as case studies but these are people's lives and and all of that so with that long intro no it's good <laughs> um i i am actually been very interested cuz this is once again just to keep asking you all the questions to help me answer the questions i ask myself <laughs> as as a non-muslim how do you, like, yeah, I mean, because I sometimes feel uncomfortable because I feel like I'm once again just being this spokesperson for yeah. a population that can speak for themselves. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So it's a good question. And it's something that obviously I've wrestled with. Um, and I would say one thing that's been really helpful for me is thinking about the research in terms of um, using feminist research methods to kind of inform the research. And so this is not, this doesn't mean that it's not feminist research in terms of like I'm researching women Mm -hmm. or like feminist things. No, it's an approach to doing research that um, recognizes your position as a researcher. So what you bring, 
what your background is mm-hmm. um, and your your power as a researcher because we have a great deal of power because even though we like to think that we're not speaking for people we still are yeah. you know and and we have more of somewhat authority in certain situations um, and then also thinking about the people who participate in your research not as like quote-unquote subjects of your research but um, maybe you can think of like colleagues or co-workers within collaborators, um, collaborators yeah, within a larger um, social justice project. So thinking about what I'm doing is um, also participating in trying to work against these social injustices of how Muslims are represented mm-hmm. um, in the media and how they're treated in, in, in life. And so um, I think it's helpful to think of it in that way. Um, and to sort of see myself not, and this is actually what I tell people when I like contact them to interview them. I tell them that um, I'm not trying to speak for them, but to just amplify their voice and mm-hmm. amplify the work that they're already doing. So obviously you're going to be doing some speaking for people because you are the one that's writing the dissertation in the end, but trying as much as I can to um, to recognize the agency and the ability that these individuals have to be creating and speaking for themselves. Um, And so I think there's always going to be people who say, you cannot study people from a different group. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've come across that. Um, But then again, there are people who say you can't study your own population. Exactly. (laughs) And my sort of answer is that um, as a scholar, you are always both and this and this has been written about it's not i'm not i didn't come up with this idea but this is feminist research you're always an insider and an outsider so you always have some things that you can relate to the people that you're studying you're somehow connected to them um you know for me being a woman um being um someone who practices a religious faith um being a young person uh, there's things you can connect to and then you're always an outsider. Mm-hmm. Unless you're doing research on yourself, <laughs> you are always going to be somehow an outsider. Yeah. So I think you, it, that's not to say you just ignore those things and pretend like they don't exist. Um, but, you know, you, you, are, you have to be cognizant of this. But um, I just don't think there's, there's no perfect place where you're going to be completely mm-hmm. part of it. I mean, granted, there are certain things and there are certain experiences in life and certain things that maybe you shouldn't research if you're from the outside perspective on that. But I just think for in general, I don't see it as that big of an issue. And I think because I, you know, Muslims are 1% of the population and there's not a lot of work being done on this. I just see it as important that someone is out there trying to yeah. um, do work to bring this stuff that's already being done into a wider mm-hmm. audience. Um, so yeah. with that in mind, I mean, have you ever come across anyone that you've been interviewing who's kind of been reticent because they feel... I mean, like, you already explained yeah. that when you when you reach out to people, yeah. like, I'm just trying to amplify what you're already right. doing. Right, I mean, do most people kind of... Yeah, I mean, most people are pretty um, willing to speak with me, um, I think, because they understand that it's an opportunity for them to get their um, work out to a larger public. Okay. Um, so most people aren't too hesitant about that. I mean, the only thing I come across is sometimes people will explain things to me assuming that I don't understand them but I generally do understand those things because I've you know studied Islam yeah. and, and so there's certain things that they will explain 
and they'll say like, oh, this is part of um, our religion, and it's like, you know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Then, um, so I haven't really come across too many issues with that, but one of the things I kind of use as a tip that um, I kind of got out of be- doing journalism and working in journalism is just sort of a simple tip of just like being quiet and like letting people speak and not wanting to come across like you um know everything. know everything because then that stops people from talking um and so like i said a lot of times people will tell me things um and that i know mm-hmm. but i'm like oh okay you know like i'm not gonna be like oh i already know that you know like because i think the whole experience is that you're trying to um, to listen to what mm-hmm. people have to say, and you want people to feel So, I, just out of curiosity, um, because this goes back to some of the topics we were discussing in um, our center meetings, uh-huh. Do you see the work that you're doing in any sort of public scholarship or even social justice fashion? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I hope so. Um, I find that um, I'm very passionate about this topic because I believe that it is, um, there's many social injustices into how Muslims are treated in our country. Um, and so, and I believe strongly in the Constitution and the protections that it gives to all people based on religious or mm-hmm. no religious, you know, um, affiliation. And I believe that Americans have a role to protect those freedoms for all people. Um, and so, to me, that is really essential. Like, especially with what now, right now, what we're going through. Yeah. Um, I think it's so, so important for Americans to stand up for minority religious communities because as you know, you know, (laughs) as a religion, American religion scholar, um, the most rights that we have are because of minority religious communities (laughs) and that you can't, focus everything on the majority mm-hmm. um and so i just think like it's so that to me seems so essential um that so that kind of for me i feel like this is in a way a very small part a small contribution um to share these stories to try to um tie these stories into political movements as a way to kind of shift um, shift these opinions. I mean, unfortunately, when I started this project, it, things were better than they are now. Yeah. <laughs> um, things are worse now. So that's that's difficult. But it's kind of this bizarre thing that's happening where um, for a long time I felt like I was sort of always having to defend doing this research um, because people were kind of like, well, who really cares, you yeah. know, that... Muslims are terrorists in TV, like, whatever, who cares? Um, and now uh, it just seems like... It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And um, I, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it being everywhere. You know, like, Muslim women and these images of the hijabi woman mm-hmm. in the American flag headscarf. Um, it's just a little bit, like I said, a bit bizarre because, like, 
two years ago, this was just, like, not on anybody's radar. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was talking about this. And it, and so, yeah, so I just think it's a, to me, yes, it's incredibly important, and I think it is a social justice issue because I think it's so relevant um, to try and get this work out to the public so people can see these images. And I should say, kind of on a positive note, I mean, things are changing. You know, we see in the media we see positive. I mean, mm-hmm. it's starting to slowly yeah. change. So you have, um, you know, you have Mr. Robot, which is a show created by an Egyptian-American, starring an Egyptian-American, um, featuring uh, a woman who wears a hijab, but it's, like, not really discussed yeah. ever. She's just a, a hacker like everyone else. Um, and then you have shows like um, uh, American Crime, which did a whole series where one of the characters was Muslim, and her faith was kind of a positive thing in yeah. her life. Um, you have Miss Marvel, which is just <laughs> fantastic. I mean, such a huge influence. So, like, there's positive things that are happening, so things are not all that negative. Um, but I think um, it's just so, so much more important to have these stories shared and to promote this stuff. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about your research. Yeah, and, of uh, course. Thanks for being a scholar. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. You're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. So this episode's religion nerd moment is sponsored by a road trip that I just got back from. And is why my voice sounds like this. Um, so my road trip uh, was from St. Paul, Minnesota to St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I was following the Mississippi River. So I tried to do my best to avoid any um, major highways and just take kind of like the back road um, older expressways. Basically, I was driving alongside railroad tracks and the river the entire way and going through all these tiny little towns. It was an amazing trip. Um, but you're probably all not asking, what does this have to do with religion? So it was really, really exciting for me as a Midwesterner and as somebody who wants to study the Midwest kind of seeing the progression of settlements and where different populations settled throughout the region um, by looking at what religious institutions were predominant in these different areas. So um, I started in St. Paul and, you know, it's Minnesota. There's a really large Lutheran population and there were quite a lot of Lutheran churches. Uh, That was definitely the number one um, religious population or that was represented Um, by churches and buildings and large signs that I could easily see just by driving through towns. As I progressed into Iowa, and I actually did a quick little jaunt over to Wisconsin to La Crosse, um, it became predominantly Catholic. It was was actually a very shocking shift. Um, All of a sudden, I was in Minnesota in a small town where there was like two Lutheran churches, and then I crossed the border and everything is Catholic. But so, you know, we go from Lutheran to Catholic throughout Iowa and um, southwestern Wisconsin. And then we move into Missouri, and it definitely becomes much more Baptist. Um, And there's also a mix between more Baptist and Methodist. Methodist was present throughout every single state that I drove through, but um, it definitely became clearer with the Baptist population in Missouri. 
So it's really definitely interesting to see how different religious populations settled along the Mississippi. And I definitely am going to be looking into this a whole lot more in the coming years. Um, and I also just want to point out that the uh, episode's beer pairing, which you can find in the show notes, is in honor of this road trip. Um, you know, going home to the Midwest, you have to drink Midwestern beer. And um, I really wanted to celebrate that with um, Urban Chestnut's Midwest IPA. I don't mind West Coast, and I don't mind East Coast. Oh, baby, but I ain't gonna live on no coast. I'm just a plain old Midwestern boy. Yes, I'm getting by on Central Town. Some people say that the Mississippi River is the backbone of the nation. They can say whatever they want. I won't disagree with that. Last episode, I introduced a change to the Holy Media schedule. So due to the demands of being a PhD student, the podcast will now run from May through October with many bonus episodes as current events demand. And my, my hope is that this new timeline will allow me to be more creative and devote more time to producing each episode. And if you haven't noticed, the last few episodes have really highlighted this idea of public scholarship. And this is a conversation I'm currently participating in and concerned about. So stay tuned for more about the role of academics working for the public good. It's going to be a major theme this summer and going forward in my work. Uh, you may even see an inaugural Holy Media blog post about this in the coming weeks. Um, it's my hope to eventually supplement uh, the podcast with some writing um, during the academic year because it's easier for me to uh, write something while I'm in the process of researching and writing everything else um, than produce an entire episode. So thanks again to all of you for your patience as I negotiate researching, teaching, and this amazing podcast. I'm a little biased with that adjective. And I do apologize for my voice on this episode. Um, I'm currently recovering from a bug at the time of recording, so uh, I'm even lucky that I have a voice to record this right now. So thanks for your patience, and thanks for putting up for my my raspy voice this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Holy Media. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at holymedia.com. There you can find links to some of the case studies Chrissy mentions, such as Salafi Feminist. And you can start a conversation about this episode's topic on Twitter using the show's handle, at holymedia, or by commenting on the episode post on the website. And I want to give a huge thanks to all of those who helped the show's Twitter account reach 100 followers. Um, so I'm going to give a shout out to Danger, Mr. Lowe, Andres, Delante, Herod, Jacob Lebniz, and Professor Judas Weissenfeld. If I mispronounced your name, I deeply apologize, and please, please feel free to send me um, a private message or tweet at me with the proper pronunciation, and I will redo it and correct it for next episode. Um, and if you enjoy listening to Holy Media while out for a run, like how I listen to podcasts in your car or washing the dishes... I ask that you rate and comment about the show on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Those ratings help others discover the show, and you know you want to share the amazingness that is Holy Media. So if you leave a review, I'll make sure to give you a shout out on the next show. Thanks again for listening. Just getting by on Central Time. I'm getting by on Central Time. Just getting by. And this is Holy Media.